this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. Ian Ippolito is up next. He sold VWorker to Freelancer in 2012. At the time, VWorker was doing about $11.5 million in total revenue. And he was approached by Freelancer. And I think the story is a really neat one. I want you to pay special attention to the way Ian negotiated with Matt. Matt made a number of offers throughout the development of VWorker. Uh, Ultimately, they got into a real negotiation. And one of the things I think Ian did really well is not get offended when Matt made a lowball offer to begin the negotiation. He stuck with it. He went through three rounds of negotiations. He got another offer, ultimately 2x the original offer that Matt made from Freelancer. So lots of really great negotiation tactics, and I think it's just a real level-headed approach to selling a very successful business. Here's Ian Ippolito. Ian Ippolito, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you so much, John. It's great to be here. Yeah, so tell me a little bit about this company, VWorker. I understand that you, you started out with this kind of cool name, Rent-A-Coder. got to know what, what the story is mm-hmm. behind that. Mm-hmm. Well, so Rent-A-Coder, basically what it was, was uh, back in the old days, like, so this was like around uh, 2001 or so. It was actually like just before the dot-com crash and all that had happened. So this was a while ago. Um, I, I had a website called Planet Source Code. And Planet Source Code was it was doing pretty good. It had a whole bunch of people that were coming to visit, like three million people coming to visit every single month, and was doing well. I was running it out of my house, but the dot com crash came, and and unfortunately wiped out that business, and uh, all my advertisers dried up. And like I said, the dot com crash came, so uh, I was kind of in a tight space. I had all these bills for uh, T1, which was the, uh, the bandwidth that you had to pay for at the time to run an internet site. There was no such thing as, you know, broadband. So, uh, I had huge bills, like six or $7,000 every single month that I couldn't get rid of and no income. So, uh, I thought, well, you know what? I have all these, and I was in big trouble. So I thought, you know what? I have all these programmers here. You know, what could I do with these guys? And, and I thought, you know, everyone's always asking me, Hey, Ian, can you program something for me? Can you do this? And I would be like, no, I don't have the time for that. Ask somebody on the site. And nothing would ever happen because they wouldn't trust each other. You know, hiring someone on the internet anonymously is pretty scary. So I thought, well, what if I could create something where they could hire someone over the internet that they didn't know, but put the mechanisms in place to make sure that it was safe, so like escrowing the money. So they made sure that they would get what they paid for and things like that. So that's basically where rent, the idea for Rent-A-Coder came. And I kind of just started it from my house an extra bedroom in my house and uh, it was just myself working on it and eventually grew to the point where it solved my financial problems with the other company and then uh, eventually became a company on its own. Neat. So what was the business? Did you take a cut of, of every you know, transaction? Is that how you made money? What was the business model? 
A couple different ways. Yeah. So uh, initially it was a cut and it was about, I think initially uh, 15% of every job that went to the site. And uh, after kind of creating that model and being the first to introduce escrow and stuff like that, of course, competitors popped up. And one of the ways that they tried to compete was by driving the price down. So um, we had to try to, you know, you can compete on price, but I, I didn't really want to do that because then it's kind of a race to the bottom. So then we started adding other features. So we had the ability to build by the hour, for example, and things like that. But still, actually, the fixed price or the uh, the billing as a percentage was probably always the biggest part of the the, the revenues that were generated. And the type of, of people on the site were, were originally, obviously, coders, people who build out mm-hmm. um, technology. You evolved it from Rent-A-Coder into a company called V-Worker. Maybe talk a little bit about mm-hmm. what precipitated that evolution. Okay. Well, what was interesting is, so yeah, so I created this company just for coders and just for programming. and uh, But there was a miscellaneous section and I, where people could post whatever they wanted and didn't have to be programming. And the miscellaneous section got really popular. And people were posting things about, hey, I, I need to get some writing done, or I need to get some translation work done, or design work, or any of a million things. And I realized, you know what, this idea, it's been working good for programmers, but it's a much bigger idea than I realized at first. So, uh, so but I was like, well, you know, who's going to hire a writer from rent to code really? I mean, people were doing it, but it's not going to happen in, in math. So uh, that's where the rebranding came in. And so it, I was like, you know what, we have to kind of rebrand something more generic. And so it meant a lot of work and it meant a lot of money because it meant changing everything, changing all the marketing on the site, changing the business cards, changing signage and stuff like that. But uh, in the end, it was definitely worth it because before it was just like a little kind of a tech thing that was interesting maybe to people that were doing tech. But then afterwards is when the company really got all sorts of publicity from like the major news and the, the more mainstream news like CBS and Fox Business News and people like that were wanting to interview me. Because if this was all of a sudden something that anyone could use, you know, it was like, hey, if I needed to make a little bit of extra money, and maybe I'd been laid off from my job. And at the time, this was like right around the time of the Great Recession and everything. So uh, the timing was really good. They were like, oh, here's something you could do to make some extra money. Got it. So what was your revenue for Rent-A-Coder when you made the switch to VWorker? Oh, that is a good question. So that was like around, it was around the Great Recession. You know, it was probably around maybe... Six million or something around there. I'd have to look, but that'd be my guess. And six million. So is that the amount of transaction volume? So your cut of that would have been fifteen percent of six million, or was? Um, well, let me think, let me remember now because it's been a while. But I think it was yes. Yeah, so it was uh, that w- our cut would have been our cut would have been fifteen percent of that. Yes. And at the time, I think we didn't really do too much hourly stuff because hourly is basically straight revenues versus the fixed price which would be a percentage. Got it. Got it. Okay. So that's helpful. So you're billing 6 million on the platform of which about 900 grand is coming through to you as sort of net revenue uh, yes. uh, of, associated with your revenue share piece. And you mm-hmm. went to VWorker. Now at the time you would have had sites like, I guess, Elance. I think this would have been before Upwork. Uh, were those mm-hmm. direct competitors of yours, or or did you see yourself as sort of different from those guys? Um, they were direct competitors. Uh, I actually was didn't do my due diligence when I created the company, and didn't even realize those guys were out there. And uh, was fortunate because basically, Rent-A-Coder was the only site that had the escrowing protection. 
So I took a lot of market share away from those guys in the very beginning before they kind of changed track and then, and then copied. But um, yes, they were direct competitors and uh, they were kind of potential bidders at the end when it was time to exit. Yeah. So let's get into that. What, what caused you to want to exit this business? Um, what, was there a sort of a trigger event or something in your life that happened that made you think, maybe this is the time? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So uh, well, it was kind of two triggers. So first I got married to my wife. And uh, so I met her, got married. You know, as an entrepreneur, being single is actually a really good thing because it's like a lot of hours, you know, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks. And, uh, you know, I was single most of the time while I was an entrepreneur. So got married. And then I was like, you know what? I, I just can't keep up the schedule. It's like these 70 and 80 hour weeks are just not going to work. And then we were having a baby on the way. So I thought, you know what? Maybe this is the time to reexamine and figure out, you know, how this is all going to work. And that's when I first started uh, thinking about it. But even then, I wasn't really, I was like, I wasn't sure how it was going to work. And so what happened was I was actually approached by the uh, owner of a competing site, so Freelancer, and they ended up being the one that bought it. But the, that he approached me, he actually was writing me almost every month and was like, hey, do you want to sell? Do you want to sell? And I was really leery about him at first. I mean, actually for a long time, because, uh, you know, I, I didn't know if he was serious and, I, and he's a competitor and he's wanting, obviously, if, if I say yes, he's going to want all the financial details and, you know, and our secret thoughts, you know, and I wasn't ready to reveal that because not knowing his intentions. So I actually put him off for a long time. And then finally, the, the really key thing is what changed my mind is that uh, Freelancer bought another site. And he, uh, so Matt Barry, the CEO, you know, sent me an email, said, hey, just to let you know, this is not public information yet, but we are about to buy the number six site in the industry. And uh, sent me, you know, the information. And I was like, oh, he's for real. And so I called the CEO of that company and just asked him what was going on. And he said, yeah, we're selling. And the process went very smoothly and they were serious. And then so that was really the point where I was like, okay, you know, you know I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be serious about this. Got it. And so how did it go from there? He's been calling you every month. Suddenly your tune changes and you're like, well, maybe. What, <laughs> what, 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 what was that conversation like? It was really fast. I mean, um, well, and what's funny is, you know, they're in Australia, I'm in the U.S., I'm in Tampa, and through the whole negotiation process and everything, we never met in person once. And it, we completed the whole sale completely remotely. So, uh, but, uh, which, which is, people, when I tell people that, they're like, what, is that crazy? But, you know, both of our businesses are doing remote work, so hopefully we can figure it out. But, um, yeah, so he, he I, I, I said, that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this, let's talk. And he said, okay, well, I need to, you know, look at your financials. I need to look at all that stuff. And at this point, since I had the trust, I was able to say, look, I'm going to be an open book to you. I'm just going to give you full access to all this stuff. You can send your guys through, you can do your due diligence. So they, because I did, I didn't like hand it out to them piecemeal. I just said, you know, have full access to all of it. And because I was able to do that, because of kind of my unique situation, it went really fast. The entire negotiation process, including the due diligence, took probably about a month. Wow. So uh, that's, yeah, so negotiation, due diligence, everything. Wow, that's incredible. I think that's one of the fastest I've, yeah. I've ever heard of. Now, did yeah, you have some yeah, sort of, did, like, what gave you confidence that Matt wasn't going to take the information other than your call with the number six guy? I mean, did you have a non-disclosure agreement with Matt or some sort of legal? Yeah. Thing? You did. 
Yes, and then so there was also the legal protection. But and in the past, even the legal protection, you know, I figured uh, someone might be able to weasel their way out of it or claim that they knew some of this beforehand and had gotten it from someone else. So that's why before the legal protection, I wasn't it wasn't quite enough. But knowing that he was actually a serious buyer and had put down money on someone else was what what made me feel comfortable with revealing all that. Got it. And so. The diligence or the NDA is in place. At what point do you guys start talking money? Um, let's see. So he did his due diligence probably in about a week. So of the of the four weeks that it took, so right after the start of week two is around the time where, okay, so I took a look at this. Here's what he's saying. I, you know, I took a look at this, and now, you know, I'm going to make a proposal. And of course, you know, the first proposal is always a bad one, <laughs> at least from the point of view of uh, the person selling it. But, you know, that's just the way it always works. And it's smart on the point of view of the person selling to 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 give a, a low offer for the phone. So he gave the first offer. And I was like, you know what? Uh, you know, this is not uh, this is not even close to what I would need to sell. So I thought, well, you know, I told him no. And I thought, you know what I'm going to do now? It's like, um, I'm just going to talk to some other people about this, some other companies. Let's see if somebody else is interested. And uh, this part is protected by an NDA, but I was uh, I was able to get another company that was interested, that was a competitor, that was able to uh, take a look at it. And they were able to make a more competitive offer. So, uh, so, there, so and at the same time, I was also negotiating with freelancer and telling them, hey guys, you know, you need to up the offer. And they were, and, and to their credit, you know, they knew their first offer was a low ball offer. And they came up on their own before even the other competitor came into to play. But uh, I mean, if, if I was advising someone as far as trying to sell their own company, to me, that is the most crucial thing to have leverage on the price. Because beforehand, you're talking about a percentage of revenues or, you know, or I'm sorry, you're talking about a, a multiple of revenues and things like that, which maybe you're fine with. But once you have some sort of bidding war going on, all that goes out the window, and then you can really get a good price for your company. Yeah. So, are you are you kind of negotiating this on your own, or do you have? Did you approach the other uh, the other firm directly, or did you have a broker or an advisor helping you at this point? Well, at this point, no, I didn't. So at this point, I was negotiating myself. I felt fairly comfortable with that. I've done you know a lot of negotiations for the company itself and everything like that. Um, I didn't feel that, I felt that there was enough enough trust and history with the other companies that I could kind of talk directly with the CEOs and that they would be listening to me. You know, I didn't feel, I could see in another situation, it would be better for maybe to have a neutral third party, you know, in there. I felt like I actually had a little bit of an advantage there. So, so I didn't. Um, where I brought the help in was once, so once we had kind of like the high level details worked out of like, here's the price, here's how long it's going to take, you know, that sort of thing. Then that's when I brought in uh, the people to kind of look over it again and, and double check it. I brought in the attorneys, you know, to kind of look at the contract, look for things I missed, that sort of thing. Got it. So you go out and get this other kind of competing offer. What was Matt's reaction when you told him there was another buyer at the table? Um, you know, he was very professional. Uh, you know, he was like, oh, well, obviously you're not taking my offer, but, and of course he came back, he was trying to persuade me that, you know, his offer was better, even if it wasn't at a higher price because of the, the non-cash things his company could offer me, you know, and, and could offer, you know, the deal, um, and, and how, 
you know, maybe kind of like from a satisfaction point of view, the software that we created would be would be more appreciated, you know, things like that. What like but, what kind of um, what kind know, of what kind of non-cash things was was he offering to make his his offer look more attractive? Well, uh, one thing, uh, and maybe this was kind of like hybrid cash, but he said, well, you know, we could offer you know stock options. You know, we are, I think at the time they were not public. So he was like, well, you know, hey, there's a good possibility that we might go public and we can give these stock options at a very cheap price. And, you know, that could be a, uh, you know, versus this other company is probably just going to give you cash. So, but, you know, I was actually kind of of the, the other point of view. I, I didn't, I was ready to get out and I didn't want to have any more chips on the table. So I, I was not really interested in, you know, stock options and things like that. I wanted, you know, I wanted cold hard cash. Why were you so insistent that you wanted to get out? Well, it, it was really because of my, uh, my my family situation, where all of a sudden we were having about to have a kid, and I was working these really long hours, and so I was like, you know, this is just not a sustainable situation that I'm in. So, you know, usually when you get the stock options, there's some sort of thing where you continue to work with the company for a while. You're like an advisor. You're putting in hours. And, and I did have to end up working a few hours, but I, I think the total hours I ended up negotiating was something like 50 hours a month for like maybe like two or three months or something like that. So it was really small. So, uh, you know, that was really what I was looking for. So the offer from from Matt at this point, it, there's a cash component. And then he's also asking you to work as a sort of consultant for a period of time. It sounds like 50 hours a month for two or three months. Well, actually, he didn't ask that at the time. He was wanting, you know, it was going to be more by negotiating this down. Got it. Got it. Got it. And was there a, an earnout component where, you know, they were offering an additional tranche of money if you hit a certain set of targets in the future, or was it sort of an all cash deal? It was all cash. It's interesting because I guess I did have some advice because uh, I had talked to a business broker beforehand, and he said, you know, Ian, almost always in these deals, we always have. A component where there's an earnout, and he says honestly, ninety percent of the time the earnout is disappointing to the person that's selling, and and many times it doesn't even happen at all. So uh, once you lose control of, if you no longer have complete control of the company, you know why are you receiving earnings on something you don't control, and that the other person can totally change direction at the highest level? So I kind of took that advice to heart, um, and I was fortunate that in my circumstances I could you know, negotiate that. Um, I realize not everyone can, but uh, I, I kind of went at it from that point of view. Were either of the two bidders asking for an earnout? Um, no. And actually, I made it up front. I made it clear up front that, you know, that's not what I was looking for. And so pushing back, if I were in Matt's shoes at this point, I'd be like, wow, Ian, you must think your business is, you know, the best days are are behind it. If, if you, you know, you don't want an earn out, you're not willing uh -huh. to stand behind your company. Like, did you get any of that pushback? Yes. Um, no, because, uh, you know, they had seen a consistent record, a consistent track record. So it wasn't like, you know, I started the company so long ago, you know, back in 2001. So they could see it over quite a period of time. Um, but I could definitely see that, someone would try to use that as a negotiation technique uh, against someone. I mean, again, my, my counter argument for someone that's in that situation would be, well, if you want to give me a hundred percent control of those earnings in the future, you know, that's fine. But when that other company is now making the key decisions that are going to be affecting that earning, those earnings, you know, how fair is that to me? It's a tough situation. I can understand both sides. 
So you've got this other offer from the competitor and you go back to Matt and Matt's sort of saying, hey, look, there's more than cash to this deal. There's some other things that we can work in, maybe some stock options, so forth. Take me through the next round of negotiation. Did 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 Matt then raise his offer again, or did the the other party I think bring he, it better? Uh, he raised his offer a couple of times before the other party even came in. So he knew his offer was, was low. And um, so he raised it a couple of times as we were just kind of haggling back and forth before the other party came in. When, when he finally was like, you know, this is, this is, you know, I'm probably not going to come in anymore. And I was like, you know, that's, I, I need to go take this somewhere else because it's still not enough. Took it to the other party. Uh, you know, they made their offer. And I believe at that point, Matt made one final offer. And I was like, and, and the other company was not willing to come up any higher. So it was a done deal. Every negotiation at some points, the other side says, look, this is, you know, my final offer. What, you know, yeah. it sounds like in your case, you knew that in Matt's case, there was, even after the second time he brought the offer up, there was still maybe a little bit of wiggle room for him. What gave you the yeah. sense that, that that he had more room to go? Well, um, actually, I didn't know. I didn't know for sure. It's really hard. You know, he's keeping his cards close to his vest. I felt it wasn't a fair value for the company. I felt that I could get more for it, and that was really what it was. And probably if I'd gone to the marketplace, which is kind of what I did, and talked to these other people, and they're like, look, take that deal because that's the best you're going to get, then, you know, I would have been fine with it. But, uh, or maybe not. You know, even then I thought that it was, you know, maybe I could have gotten a better deal in the future. I don't know. I don't know what I would have done. But, um, so no, I, I didn't know they had more. Now, what it turned out was that he, he wasn't lying. I mean, that was the best that he could do kind of with the way he was thinking. But when it was time to come up with more money, he then realized, oh, you know what? Well, we're planning this expansion next year. We could take the money from that and put it into here. You know, we're planning on doing these things. You know, almost always there's a way to find a little bit more money if someone has an incentive to do it. And now the other party that ultimately was the unsuccessful bidder, they put together one offer for you. Is that right? They, they didn't increase it? Right. That's right. And how did you know, like, what was it about their negotiation posture that you got the sense that that's, that's as far as you could push them? There was no, there was no point in getting, trying no, to go back to them. I, I mean, I, I did try. <laughs> and that was really the only way that I knew because, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I have not been able to figure out a way to be able to tell for sure. And so um, I guess my philosophy or my strategy is just, I just, I just push and I just, I try. And either it happens or it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, that's when I know that, you know, that, that was the, the, the most. Yeah. Usually you don't have to accept an offer right away. You can usually stall. So, you know, you can usually say, oh, well, hmm, you know, that, that, that you know, they, they are usually pressuring you to, to accept it right then. They're like, look, as high as I can go, you know, I have a deadline tomorrow. You know, I got to tell my shareholders or I got to do this. You know, you got to make up your mind now. And uh, one of the things that I would always do is I would always stall. So I'd come up with some sort of reason why, no, I just can't come up with this, excuse, you know, some, some excuse where I couldn't do it right now to give me the time to try to find out more information. Like what kind of stuff would you say? Party or whatever. What kind of stuff would you say? I mean, stall? I could be like, well, you know, my attorney, I mean, I, I mean I'm, <laughs> I'm giving away all my secrets now, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, my, oh, you know my, my attorney just called me and they are so swamped right now with another closing. And, you know, they just don't have time to process this. 
it's going to take them at least a couple of days before they come up for air. You know, there's always something that you can say. The unsuccessful bidder, there was their offer better than Matt's kind of increased offer? Matt had increased it two times before you went to the unsuccessful bidder. Was the right. unsuccessful bidder's offer better than Matt's second offer? Um, no, it was not. Let's see, wait. So Matt had increased it a couple times The uh, and was done. Other bidder came in, uh, increased it, and then Matt increased it a final time. And then we were done at that point. And and then the final, uh, I, I understand the actual sale price is under NDA, so we can't talk about it. But on a percentage mm-hmm. basis, how much more was Matt's final offer than the one, the unsuccessful offer? Um, it was it was significant. I mean, uh, it, it was significant enough where it took it from the point of view where I was like, no way, I'm not selling it to the point of view of, yeah, that's that's great. That's that's exactly what I'm going for. I'm not happy with this. I'm gonna be very happy with the final deal. And so, on a percentage basis, okay. A different question might be, and again, the reason I'm asking this is I want I want people to understand that the first offer they get, um, you know, I think I think sometimes when when the first offer comes through, the mistake we make as entrepreneurs is we get insulted, right? Like, how dare right. you? you know, suggest that my company would be worth so little. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things I've learned from doing all these interviews is, is that, you know, an offer is a starting point, obviously, and that, mm-hmm. that you work it, uh, whatever you get, um, and it can, mm-hmm. it can increase, you know, by factors yeah. of sort of 100%, 200%. So don't just, mm-hmm. don't burn a bridge by, by sort of getting offended. So the reason I asked the question uh, about, I gotcha. about, yeah kind of what the difference between Matt's first offer and his final offer, like on a percentage mm-hmm. basis, are we talking like, was it two X, three X, 50% better? Like it doesn't have to be exact, but just kind of roughly. It was, I won't give you an exact, but it was more than two X. So, uh, yeah, it was significant. Got it. So, so there's, there's another data point for, for folks listening saying, you know, um, don't burn a bridge. If you do get an offer, consider yourself lucky. That's great. No matter how low it is, it's a starting point and it doesn't have to be the ending point. There could be much more baseball left to play. And in your case, obviously, sure. in, it turned out really well. Yes. And I mean, to, to me, I understand people getting insulted by it totally. And at the same time, maybe just put yourself in their shoes. It's like, what would you do? Of course, the first thing you would do, you're not going to offer your best price or the most you're going to pay. You're going to try to, to, to lowball it. And, uh, and, and I do, uh, I, I read a great book on negotiation called uh, Getting to Yes by uh, Yuri. And he was a guy who had negotiated during the Kirk Cuban Missile Crisis. And I mean, he was, he's done some, he's, he was one of the, you know, a, a world-class negotiator. And his advice in any negotiation, he said, the power of for you in any negotiation is the power of what he calls your BATNA, your best alternative to negotiated agreement. In other words, uh, he said the, the, the most, basically the most crucial part of a negotiation is actually not the negotiation itself. It's what you do beforehand to, uh, to, to prepare that BATNA. So to, to make it more concrete, like in this case, this, and I kind of did it in the reverse order. I should have done it first. But the act of going out to the marketplace and getting competing bids so that was my alternative to negotiating with Matt. And once I had that strong, strong alternative, that was better than the offer that he was giving me, obviously, you know, I was in a great place. So um, that's actually what I would recommend someone to do. So don't do what I did to do it later. Before you're even ready to get that first offer in, 
shop it out to the marketplace, have a really strong alternative to the negotiated settlement. And, you know, the strength of the final negotiation result is always going to be related to the strength of that alternative. Whoever can walk away from the negotiation is in the strongest position. So. What was the most, once you'd agreed to terms with Matt, that mm-hmm. he, you know, he put this third offer and it was compelling and you agreed to it. What was the most surprising thing about what went on next? Um, because there were still some, I'm sure, things that had to happen before the wire was put into your bank account. Um, mm-hmm. Some diligence, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, some T's and C's. What, what was surprising about that next phase for you? Um, I actually was surprised with how quickly it went because, um, we don't hear that much. And I guess it, yeah, yeah, exactly. I guess it had to do with, you know, giving them full access, excuse me, but it actually was very easy for me. If I had been restricting access, every time they made a request, I would have to give the information. They make a request and every time I'm doing that, I'm slowing it down, uh, by not doing that and just saying, Hey, here's our database. Here's our financial records. Go at it. Um, they were able to do all the sophisticated analysis they wanted to do. And, uh, it went really quickly. I was expecting it to take several months. And like I said, it was, it was three weeks and it was finished. Was there any attempt at retrading, trying to lower the price based on something they'd found in due diligence? Oh, let me think. Well, I mean, and they definitely found some things, um, but you know what? Every single thing that they found, you know, I was I had an explanation for. They were like, "Well, you know, why did this? Why did this occur? These revenues look like you know they're a problem, or what, what is this subset of your customer base? It's not what we expected them to be, or you know, things like that." But every single one I had a problem. So no, they were they were really uh, there was no way for them to negotiate it down at that point. If you had it to do over again, what one tactic, one negotiation kind of move might you make differently? If you could do it all over again, just one. <laughs> you can do as many um, as you want. Okay, all right. Um, so, so one was what we were just talking about, which was I should have brought in more people sooner. In fact, probably if I had gotten two people interested in it, I bet I could have got, I could have taken that then to you know the other people and shown that hey, we've got two of your competitors that are interested in this and generated even more interest. Probably gotten the price up even higher. So I made a mistake there. Um, but even earlier, I think, and in retrospect, you know, this is a retrospect thing. I didn't know it at the time, but, um, I didn't time my exit properly. I should have sold it earlier. Um, basically, you know, looking at the trajectory of the industry itself, you know, and who had money available to spend and, you know, uh, let me, let me explain what I'm trying to say here. Okay. So by the time I actually sold, you know, I had freelancers that was a very aggressive bidder. Uh, they, they were in Australia. Their economy was very different than over here in the U.S., you know, because we had suffered through the Great Recession. A lot of the competitors that were the U.S.-based were kind of hunkered down, so they didn't have a ton of money to spend. Um, if I had sold, you know, back in the go-go days, you know, and that was not that much earlier, so it probably would have just been maybe four or five years earlier, um, I would have got a significantly higher, you know, amount. But, you know... That's one of those things that, uh, that that's hindsight, uh, and it was, it was something that I learned. If I ever do it again, I need, I'm going to look more at that. And you know, the other mistake that I made was the fact that I was so focused on just growing the company, and I actually built it to, like that book, Built to Last, I built it to own it forever. So I wasn't really looking and keeping my eyes out to you know the, the situation outside the company to see what the timing should be. 
So if I was going to do it again, uh, I would be paying a lot more attention to that. Hmm. Interesting. And what are you doing now? Just enjoying time with your your baby and your wife, I, I'm assuming, because that was the, mm-hmm. the purpose mm-hmm. for uh, that was for selling. That was the goal. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm doing a lot of that. It's, it's fantastic. It's great. Um, we moved into a new house, and we're just enjoying that and fixing it up. But um, I actually do have, you know, it's uh, retired life is pretty boring. So uh, I, I have a few things that I have started up on the side. I have a, um, a, a two startups, which is crazy, but I have a gaming startup, which is um, uh, people that play for real money on an app in 45 seconds or less against other people. Hmm. Uh, it's like a puzzle game. Sounds like a really, a really easy thing. way to lose a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> We're making yeah, a lot of money. It's pretty addictive. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty addictive. Um, the uh, uh, the other thing is a real estate crowdfunding startup that evaluates companies that are in this real estate crowdfunding business, uh, which is a new thing where people cooperate to uh, to buy real estate. I have my own investments, which actually probably take up my own, most of my time, which are just managing my investments and keeping track of them. Um, I, I'm into real estate and things like that, but it's. It's, it's a completely different world than when I was actually, you know, running like this time around back then my, my back was against the wall. You remember I had like all those bills and like I was in trouble. I was in financial trouble. I had to make things work this time. There's really no pressure at all. So uh, some people would say that's not the ideal way to have a startup or, you know, a company cause you kind of need that pressure and maybe you do, but um, it's definitely a lot less for my stress levels. So that's nice. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Where do people reach you, Ian? If they wanted to reach out, do they? You want to plug a website or a Twitter account? What, what's What's the best way to reach you? Sure. Yeah, uh, my Twitter account is Ippo Dude because my last name is Ippolito. Ippo Dude. It's also my name, Ian Ippolito. They can reach out to me on LinkedIn. They can find me, uh, Ian Ippolito, there. Um, any of those ways work, or they can uh, look me up on Exceder.com, which is the kind of like my parent company where uh, everything is all rolled under. And we'll put those links in the show notes at builtcell.com slash blog. Ian Ippolito, thanks for joining us. Yes, my pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.